Good evening, everyone. I think we're about to start. Um, welcome to the RA. My name is Amy Blewett, and I work on the events and lectures program here at the RA. Tonight, I'm delighted to welcome you all to the beautiful surroundings of the Academicians' Room, which is usually only open to the Royal Academicians and members of this space. Tonight will be the third in a series of short story readings in collaboration with Pindrop, and we're delighted tonight to be able to invite novelist Graham Swift to continue our run of memorable and enchanting events. Oh, well, what a lovely welcome. Thank you very much. And thank you all for being here. Um, I can only say I give my warm thanks to both the Royal Academy and to Pindrop for having me here in this really superb room. I'm here to read you a story, and the story is called Ajax. When I was a small boy, we had a neighbor called Mr. Wilkinson, who was a weirdo. He must be long gone now, but I've often wondered what became of him. I was his undoing. Let me stress that I never thought he was a weirdo. It wasn't my word. It was an opinion I was made to have of him. I was too young to have opinions of my own, or so it was thought. I was just a small boy attending primary school. But I didn't think Mr. Wilkinson was weird. I thought he was interesting. I even admired him. I was driven into taking an opposite view. When I was with my mother and we met Mr. Wilkinson in the street, he would always be well-mannered. He'd doff his hat. He'd always wear a hat and be well-dressed in a suit often, even if the suit had seen better days. He'd ask courteously after my father, Mr. Simmons, and he used words with a feeling for them, as if they were things you should treat appreciatively, not just mechanically employing standard phrases. Maybe it was his enthusiastic use of language that first made my parents think he was weird. He looked entirely respectable. The dearest wish of all the grown-ups in our street was to be respectable, and by being respectable, to better themselves. So you'd think they might have regarded Mr. Wilkinson as a model. It was obvious even to me that he was in some ways a cut above our street. He'd come down in the world to it. It was also obvious that he was what people called educated. I had had it drummed into me by my parents from the earliest age that education was the most important thing, the key to everything, and I believed them. Education was one of the first long words I learnt, and learning it was rather magically an example of the thing it proclaimed. At school, I had no problem with teachers. I revered them. They were the purveyors of this most important thing. And it struck me that Mr. Wilkinson had the qualities of a teacher and perhaps had been one once. He seemed, in fact, even more educated than any of the teachers at my primary school. 
And for this reason, too, I couldn't see why the whole street didn't look up to him instead of thinking he was weird. But Mr. Wilkinson lived alone. That was one mark against him. And though he'd always be respectably dressed when you met him in the street, he was in the habit of engaging in physical exercises in his back garden in just his underpants. In all weathers, even mid-January, just his underpants. It wasn't only exercising either. There seemed to be a whole ritual medley of things that sometimes involved simply breathing, a vigorous expanding and deflating of his lungs, and sometimes involved not doing anything in particular except chanting. Chanting was the best word for it. You might sometimes have called it humming or even singing. But chanting was the word that got used in his underpants. Anyone can do what they like in the privacy of their own home. This was something my parents would have firmly and fairly asserted. But they also said about many things that there were limits. Our street was like thousands of other streets built in the outer suburbs just after the war. But for some reason, it had been decided to build first a pair of semi-detached, then a bungalow, then another pair of semis, and so on. If you had a bungalow, you only had the one floor, but you had the privilege of being detached. There wasn't a great deal of space, but you could walk all the way round the outside of your own home, even in your underpants. On the other side of us, in the adjoining semi, were the Hislops. They'd been there, as had my parents, since the houses were built, but they were a slightly older generation. Their two boys, I never thought of them as boys, were old enough for one of them to have done national service. I can remember him in a beret with a kit bag. Their father ran a small printer's. The boys had girlfriends, tinkered around with cars, and got married. There was nothing particularly educated about the Hislops. They were even slightly rough-edged, but they were a family and normal. On the other side, was Mr. Wilkinson. There was a high wooden fence with a bit of trellis on top between ourselves and Mr. Wilkinson. So the only way you could see him in his underpants was from our spare bedroom or my parents' bedroom, both at the back upstairs. This, of course, put us in the position of spies. While all Mr. Wilkinson was doing was minding his own business. Nonetheless, my parents, and particularly my mother, didn't want to live next door to someone who was even known to stand around in his underpants and chant. And you could hear the chanting sometimes without needing to look. Mr. Wilkinson, I should say, was quite old. By that I mean that he seemed old to me. He must have been in his fifties. He had thinning, whitish hair, 
but none of the stoopingness or vulnerability of old people. He was well-built, even quite muscular, as could be seen, and plainly he kept himself fit. He was a good advert for physical education, too. I only remember him as Mr. Wilkinson. I can't recall ever knowing his first name. Perhaps it was considered wrong to know it. Mr. Hislop was also Tony. My parents christened me James, and they gradually gave up the battle against Jimmy. When I was first introduced to Mr. Wilkinson, before we knew anything of his habits, it was as James. But he immediately, and perhaps only in a spirit of friendship, called me Jimmy. I saw that this set my mother against him. Not only was there the fence and the trellis, but because the street was on a hill and Mr. Wilkinson was above us, it was virtually impossible at ground level to see the back of his bungalow or into his garden. In the months when the trellis wasn't overgrown, you might just glimpse his white-haired but imposing head moving past, or even a pale pink shoulder, which could make you wonder if he was wearing underpants this time, or nothing at all. On warm days, I used to like playing by the flower bed at the foot of the fence near the back of the house. Playing really meant re-landscaping the flower bed according to my infant purposes, which naturally displeased my parents. But I remained so set upon this activity that they eventually allowed a strictly limited part of the bed to be used for it. Perhaps they thought it was good for my development, that I might one day become a civil engineer. In fact, though they didn't know it, I was rearranging in miniature our street. I was in charge of every household in it. Imagine a region of pebble dashing and occasional bursts of mock Tudor, of rowans, laburnums, trim hedges, trim lawns, and clumps of purple aubretia. You have the picture. I think of it now with an odd fondness, but with an abiding, far-off sense of its own weirdness. One day, engaged in my flowerbed projects, I caught Mr. Wilkinson watching me intently through the trellis and the tendrils of clematis. He must have been doing it for some time before I looked up, but if I was surprised, I wasn't frightened. He wasn't spying on me, as we spied on him, so much as just waiting to speak to me. And he asked me if I was interested in agriculture and if I was a vegetarian. These were two long words I didn't know. I found them even difficult to remember. And I must have disappointed Mr. Wilkinson with my answer. But he seemed eager that I should be a vegetarian. I told my parents. I was at heart a truthful, conscientious boy. 
and I must have repeated the words accurately enough. They said that agriculture was farming, and vegetarians were people who didn't eat meat. And then my mother said, and my father backed her up, that I should never speak to Mr. Wilkinson through the fence or anywhere else if I was by myself, even if he spoke to me. And this had probably been the first conversation or one-to-one -one encounter I'd had with him anyway. He stood around in his back garden in his underpants, and he was a vegetarian. This settled the question of his being a weirdo. Every Sunday, without fail, the whole street smelt of roasting meat. And if the underpants and the vegetarianism didn't clinch it, there was the matter of the visitors. Mr. Wilkinson didn't go out at regular times, as people did who had jobs, but he had visitors. They came just now and then, not in a steady flow, and didn't stay for very long. They were all sorts, but it's true that among them were a number of what my mother called young girls. There was nothing intrinsically improper about this. And again, you had to keep watch on Mr. Wilkinson's bungalow even to notice it. The simple explanation that went with his teacherly demeanor was that Mr. Wilkinson gave some kind of lessons. He taught music, perhaps. Given the chanting, perhaps he taught singing. But no one arrived, it's true, with a musical instrument, and we never heard, though we heard the chanting, the muffled sounds from within the bungalow of a piano or a poorly sung scale. He taught something, anyway, for which people were prepared to come for an hour or so and pay him. I actually had the misplaced fantasy that I might go round to Mr. Wilkinson's myself and be taught whatever it was he taught, since the key to life was education. But I was glad I kept this thought from my parents. The teaching theory never held much water, even if it was plausible and I wanted to subscribe to it. My mother, in overheard conversations with my father, kept coming back to the young girls, as if that in itself disproved it. But I could easily imagine Mr. Wilkinson teaching young girls something, elocution, deportment. I'd discovered that even very small girls at my primary school could be subjected by their parents to bouts of extracurricular improvement. And if Mr. Wilkinson had some dubious interest in young girls that was simply to do with their being young girls, and which I knew nothing of, then why didn't he restrict his visitors to young girls only? But I never voiced that argument either. The teaching theory was scotched anyway by what it became known Mr. Wilkinson had himself disclosed about his occupation and livelihood. Some other neighbor, bolder or more prying than my parents, had pinned him down on the matter and been obligingly told that he practiced his own form of alternative medicine, 
It was something he'd evolved over the years through study and application. He advertised professionally and had many satisfied patients. He had even asked the inquisitive neighbour, I think it was Mrs Fox at number seven, if there was anything he might do for her. My mother said, alternative medicine? What's that when it's at home? A favourite phrase of hers, which I much later thought was particularly apt in this case. And then she added, in his underpants. These were remarks put to my father that, again, weren't for my ears, though I overheard them. And my father said, and thinking about it much later too, I thought it pretty near the mark, hmm, alternative medicine. Well, if you ask me, I think he might once have practiced ordinary medicine, but now, if you see what I mean, he has no alternative. I retain those words because, though I didn't understand them, I could tell my father thought he'd said something clever. The cleverness had even taken him by surprise. And though I didn't know what the cleverness consisted of, I felt pleased for him, because, for a moment at least, he seemed to possess the artful and inventive way with language that was characteristic of Mr. Wilkinson. I couldn't myself picture Mr. Wilkinson as a doctor. My childhood experience of doctors was that they were gruff, chilly people who could do nasty things to you. I continued to see Mr. Wilkinson as a teacher, an educator, and perhaps alternative medicine, if it wasn't just something bad tasting in a bottle, was really a form of teaching. Perhaps Mr. Wilkinson had some special wisdom to impart. He wasn't a weirdo at all. The visitors who turned up now and then to ring his doorbell were his followers. One day, I had another conversation with Mr. Wilkinson, which proved to be rather more than a conversation. I did the thing I wasn't supposed to do, and I exceeded even that. It was in the school holidays. My father was at work. My mother was going to see her mother for the afternoon. I was to be dispatched while she was gone to play with my friend Roger West at number 10, and thus be under the watchful eye of Mrs. West. But some minor crisis in the West household prevented this, and my mother, for whatever reason, couldn't suddenly disappoint my grandmother. For perhaps the first time in my life, I was told that I would have to be alone in the house for a whole afternoon, though it wouldn't be so long, really, and I was old enough for it. But I was strictly to stay in the house or in the back garden and not to answer the door to anyone. It was a warm summer's day, so I was happy to keep to the garden, doing more reconstruction of my section of the flower bed. I don't think Mr. Wilkinson can have been aware of my exact situation because of the question he asked me. But there he was again, suddenly, 
peering through the clematis, and there was no one to witness that I was breaking my solemn oath not to speak to him. He said, excuse me, Jimmy, would your mother, would Mrs. Simmons, have anything for clearing drains? I'm awfully sorry to trouble her, but I've got a spot of bother with my one at the back here. Nothing too drastic, but in this hot weather, you know. I could see that Mr. Wilkinson was sporting a shirt collar. He wasn't just in his underpants. I had the child's instinct not to say that my mother was out. The child's alertness to the possibility of adventure, at least to the possibility of getting to know Mr. Wilkinson better, not to mention the child's excitement at the forbidden. I didn't know anything about clearing drains, but I knew there was a cupboard in the kitchen where the sort of thing that might clear them would be. I said to Mr. Wilkinson, I'll go and ask her. Did I say truthful and conscientious? In the cupboard, there were various jars and bottles, but there was a big tall tin labelled Ajax. I vaguely knew it had a variety of uses. My father sometimes used it for something in the garden, and that it was my mother's answer to anything unpleasant. There was another tin of the stuff in the lavatory upstairs. Drains? Well, why not? I picked it up, and I decided that instead of trying to pass it over the fence, impossible anyway for a small boy, I should take it round to Mr. Wilkinson directly. It was only a matter of opening the side door, which fastened with just a latch, and then walking up his front path. The truth was, I was impelled by a sly curiosity. I would be just like one of those mysterious visitors, of whom there might already have been one or two that morning. Mr. Wilkinson opened his door. He looked at me and smiled. He was wearing clothes. His strong arms projected from rolled-up sleeves. Oh, that's so good of you, Jimmy. So kind of your mother. He studied the Ajax tin, perhaps frowning a little even as he continued to smile. He could hardly reject my offering. Well, perhaps it might do the trick. He looked at me again, the frown deepening, and he seemed to hesitate. I can see now that he was coming to a significant decision. Whether to take the tin, say he'd return it later and send me away, or whether, since I was there, and it was our tin, to make me a party to his drain-clearing operation. Perhaps he thought I was just a small boy, and there was no danger, that is, to him. Or perhaps he was just infected with the same impetuous rush towards the hazardous that had overcome me. Well, he said, we may as well go straight round the side. This disappointed me. I wasn't going to be allowed to pass through the house. On the other hand, I could see, or could see later with hindsight, that he had decided wrongly to trust me, if 
trust even came into it. He liked me, I think. He thought he found a friend. We walked along by the flank wall of the bungalow. There I was, on the other side of the fence, over which he'd appeared at me, and over which he could sometimes be seen, standing near naked and ululating. He'd taken the tin from me, and raising it now like an exhibit or something in a lesson, he said, isn't it a sad thing, Jimmy, that one of the great heroes of the Greek myths, one of the most glorious of those who fought in the Trojan War, should be reduced to being a tin of scouring powder? I hadn't the faintest idea what he was talking about, but these words, nonetheless, made a great impression on me and have stayed with me ever since. I still hear them being spoken in the eloquent, playful, yet lamenting way Mr. Wilkinson uttered them. The fact is that it is to this unintelligible but memorable remark I owe all my later discovery and enthralled exploration of the Greek myths. I owe a whole world of narrative and magic and meaning. I owe a whole education. When my parents asked me later that year what I wanted for Christmas, I said at once that I wanted a book that would tell me all the stories of the Greek myths the Trojan War included. This request rather surprised them, but they found me such a book. It was a little beyond me at first, but I grew into it. I have it still. But more than this, much more. I owe to Mr. Wilkinson's remark all my lasting fascination, not just with how a great Greek hero gets turned into a tin of scouring powder, but with all the strange turns and twists this world can take, all the bizarre changes for good or bad it can offer, and I should know about them. When we say scouring powder, Jimmy, we really mean lavatory cleaner, don't we? No doubt at your age, you have your lavatorial interests. Did you know, Jimmy, that in Elizabethan times, a lavatory was called a Jake's? A Jake's? Ajax? Do you see the connection? Again, I hadn't the foggiest what he was on about, but I found it all beguiling, tantalizing. He took me round to the back of the bungalow, where an outflow pipe from his kitchen led into a little gully with a drain hole and a grill. We had something similar beneath our own kitchen. I could see he was now hesitating again, that he wasn't sure he should be doing this in my company. But I could also sense his mood of willful risk-taking, that he wanted to let me even into his secret. I could see that he had removed the grill and had been poking about with a stick. Ajax, he said, well, will it, will he do the trick? Whatever it was that was clogging his drain, it was deep down, or else there was some uncooperative bend in the pipe. 
the hole was abnormally full, almost overflowing with dirty water. But it wasn't just water. It was water with a distinctly reddish color. It made me think at once of the slop bucket that would be sometimes visible in our local butchers, where I'd go with my mother and where there'd be sawdust on the floor and halves of pigs hanging on hooks and dripping. In the drain hole, a little bobbing shred of something, a mere gobbit of scum floated in the water. Let me say that everything was so much more primitive in those days, even if gentlemen doffed hats. It was so much nearer the Middle Ages. There'd been a war, there'd been rationing. My mother was perfectly capable of skinning and cooking a rabbit. But there came a point when she wouldn't have liked to admit to this or even to eat rabbit. When my parents developed their desire for respectability and advancement, they really wanted to move into the clean, modern age and leave behind them all traces of the ancient gutter. They weren't squeamish. They weren't innocent. But they wanted to live tidy lives. And they didn't like weirdness. I could see that in theory our street didn't mind Mr. Wilkinson's being weird, but they minded his being weird in our street. They hoped that something would be done about it. But short of some superior agent stepping in, they believed that by the sheer force of their adverse opinion, Mr. Wilkinson might be compelled to leave and take his weirdness elsewhere. They wanted him flushed out. In this situation was the whole history of the world. I could see that the mucky water in Mr. Wilkinson's drain was composed partly of blood. And I could see that for some inscrutable and perilous reason, Mr. Wilkinson wanted me to see it and yet not to say anything. But yes, I was at heart a conscientious, a truthful boy. I honored my father and mother. I had a sense of moral responsibility. I told my parents about the vegetarianism when I might have said nothing. Now I'd have to tell them about breaking the edict that had followed from that first honesty, and worse, about taking the Ajax tin and going round to Mr. Wilkinson's when I should have stayed within clearly prescribed bounds. But all this was capped by the greater and more glaring obligation to truth I had to let it be known that Mr. Wilkinson clearly wasn't a vegetarian, a slander of my own unwitting instigation, and was even, though I hadn't been able to see into his kitchen, a fairly zealous eater of meat. And by implication, he was at least in that respect so much less of the weirdo than he'd been unfairly made out to be. I can never be sure whether it was this action on my part with all its complexity and for which I was punished by not being allowed out even into the garden for most of the next day, which led directly to Mr. Wilkinson's leaving us 
which led to his being, as I was to discover later, taken into custody, while a search warrant was issued and discreetly acted upon for his bungalow. Having been so roundly punished, I was soon, confusingly, being asked questions by a kindly and patient policeman, while my mother tenderly held my hand. There were things you couldn't do in those days. The law didn't allow it, which you can do now. It was all very primitive, and perhaps the changes which have occurred since are further evidence of the importance of education. For example, Mr. Wilkinson lived alone. He might have been a homosexual, but he wouldn't have been allowed by law to be one in any practical sense. I say this because I'm a homosexual myself, though I didn't know it then. I discovered it later. You might say I had to be educated into it. There's a whole other story I might tell involving me and my parents, which is even more painful in some ways than the story of Mr. Wilkinson. But this is not the time, and perhaps you can imagine it. There are plenty of stories, but this is not the time. But I think about Mr. Wilkinson and about what I did to him. He disappeared anyway. It was what the whole street wanted. But I missed him. I even felt a little bereft. I wish I'd known his first name. A nice couple, the Fletchers, who soon had their first baby, a little girl called Jilly, I remember her name, soon moved in, and this was what the whole street wanted too. There are some people who might say or think of me now that I am a little weird, or at least odd, but then if you're a professor of Greek, you're allowed to be that. The world even rather expects it of you, especially if your hair has turned to a snowy fleece and you wear tweed suits and affect white-spotted red bow ties. I have never, so far, walked across the court here to the senior common room, across the grass on which only a few are permitted to walk in just my underpants, or for extra brio in my fellow's gown too. But I'm sure if I did this, and frankly I am tempted, it would be forgiven me at least once, since I am the Morley Edwards Professor of Greek. And I'm sure that far more scandalous acts have occurred in Oxford colleges and yet been permitted, or at least smoothed over, acts that would never be countenanced in suburban streets. All my life, I have taken seriously, pursued and furthered my parents' creed that education is the most important thing. Education that leads us on an ameliorating journey through life. I am their exemplar, their vindication. 
What could better have answered and glorified their tenet than that I should have become a professor at an Oxford college? If you want weirdness, real weirdness, the weirdness we are all made of, if you want the primitive that never goes away, then go to the Greek myths and to what the Greeks made of them. Though don't forget your Ajax tin. Ajax, son of Telamon and mighty warrior, second only to Achilles, but ousted by the brain of Odysseus, went mad in the end, mistaking sheep for people. I know this now. Thank you so much, Graham. Um, having had the pleasure of reading the entire collection, um, I can promise you all that England and Other Stories is populated by many incredible characters like that. And I think Graham has a real talent for inhabiting his characters. Um, they're very varied. There are Docklands window cleaners, there are gay embryologists, there's a 17th century surgeon, and it really is just a, re a wonderful read. Um, I'm sure that many of you have questions. Can I open the floor to questions? Uh, yes, I'm going to go to you first, sir. You Do you still have the book that your parents gave you? Uh, <laughs> you're addressing the character, not me. Uh, I would say uh, very little, um, and I would say that's largely true of most of my characters. Um, the odd thing about writing is that it's incredibly personal, and it comes from you. It must do. Where else does it come from? But that doesn't mean, in, in my case, that I am autobiographical in my writing. I don't base my characters either on myself uh, or on people I know. And I haven't met any of the characters in this story. Um, I would say that the world of this story and some of the inhabitants of it is not a million miles from a world that many people will know or have memories of. Um, but that's really as far as it goes. Someone else? There was someone at the front here. Um, so perhaps just to follow on to that, so where do you get your ideas from? I mean, I'm so far away from ever being a writer or anything like that. I just cannot imagine you from what... Um, well, Elizabeth uh, has said about your other stories, and they, they sound an incredible medley. Well, I, I hope if you should read the book, you'll find that that's true. There is a great variety in the book. Um, where do I get my ideas from is probably, or where do you get your ideas from, is probably the commonest question writers are asked, and certainly in my case the most difficult one to answer. Um, because in a way, linking with the last question, um, I don't get my ideas from something that is in a way already there and given. It's not as though I'm using some sort of raw material and processing it. Um, and the honest answer is, I start with nothing and I find something. 
And it's, it's always very hard to convince people of that, but in my case, this is true. Um, so I don't start with my own direct experience, for example. I wait for something which is not maybe quite nothing, but it's next to nothing. It's some little insubstantial uh, flicker, some little tremor, glimmer, call it what you like, something which is terribly small and uh, mysterious. And yet, for some reason, it is begging that I pursue it because there might be something there. And sometimes this little flicker just disappears, as flickers do, but sometimes the flicker does lead on. And it can almost be like a feeling in your arm. It's, as, it's like a sensation. Um, and when it does lead on and something comes of it, believe me, I'm always astonished that it does. I've been a writer for quite a long time, so this has happened a lot, but I am always amazed and, of course, profoundly grateful that this little next to nothing, this little flicker, has turned into something which has got pages and chapters and so on. It's, it's always an amazing thing. Um, but the thing I would stress is that, uh, believe it or not, I do actually start with nothing. So how do my ideas come? I still don't know. Do you always know that it's going to be a short story or a, a novel? I think actually the straight answer to that is yes. <laughs> um, uh, I can give you a fairly straight answer because for a long time now, and I'm talking about decades of my life, of my writing life, I have been writing novels. I began writing short stories a long time ago and then I found myself writing a novel and another one and another. And the short stories sort of deserted me. Uh, and this book is the result of a sudden return of the short stories to me. And I can't explain why that should have happened at the time it did, but it did. And suddenly I was writing short stories again, and they were coming at me pretty fast and furious. Um, and at no point did I think about any of them. Well, is this a short story or is it a novel? Uh, nor did I think, well... It could be a short story, but perhaps you could extend it into a novel. I never had that question at all. I was, in the first place, thrilled and happy to be writing stories again. Uh, so that's what I wanted to do. Um, but I never had any doubts about the form I was working in. Um, and nor have I, I think, been at the start or in the early stages of a novel and said to myself, well, actually, what you've got here is a short story. It doesn't work the other way around. I feel it was the, the fates conspiring to make you do pin drop. That's what it was. It was the, yeah, <laughs> the, that, the god of short stories. That will do as an explanation. <laughs> Thank <here>. you. <laughs> Other yes, there's one there. Your story made me think about what defines us as people. And you touched on upbringing and you touched on experience. And landscape is the other thing that's often mentioned. And when you build a character, I wonder, do you, do you look for lots of different elements or do people really just rise from the page as characters? A question about character. How do my characters become characters? Um, 
I don't think there's any formula to this. Um, and I actually think that characters in fiction happen, or happen for the author anyway, in not a dissimilar way from how people um, we meet emerge for us in life. That's to say, if we meet someone for the first time, uh, we see a lot, we get a lot, but we know there's a lot more there. Um, and I think it's similar in, in writing, that you need, first of all, from the very first moment that your character is there, is introduced, to convey a sense that they are a, a unique individual and they're alive and there's no one like them. And then, of course, you have all that they are within them to explore and to reveal, and that includes both what they are right then, the, the stuff going on inside them, and their history, their memory. And I certainly think that one of the secrets, perhaps, to convincing character is to be aware. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to depict it, but to be aware that your character does have a past. So if your main interest is a character, say, in midlife, in their 40s, 50s, um, and that's basically what you want to deal with. I think it's good always to have a sense of what they were like when they were very small or much younger. And that will help the characterization, even if it's actually not present. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed that. One thing I do that I find, and I haven't read an awful lot, but what I have read is that you take the extra, extraordinary and put it into the ordinary. And I think that's what's quite magical about this story now and all the other ones I've read. Um, and what you were talking about there is about the question before about the character. I was wondering, do, you, do the characters come to you? Or does the idea for the story come to you and then you find the characters that would assist in that story? Did you all manage to hear that? Or? It's quite a complicated question. Um, and it, not just because it's complicated, I'm not sure I can give an answer. Uh, what I'm hastily trying to do now is to remember back to when I was writing this story, Ajax, or indeed to when it first emerged. And I, for the life of me, I can't remember. Um, this is how it so often is. Um, and it, I think it's a, a, a good sign that in this case, when I was writing all these stories and they were almost lining up, as it were, to be written, that I was so full of the business and the joy of writing them that I, I didn't get my notebook out and say, well, this is how it began, and, and so on. So I don't, I don't clearly remember, and I, I certainly don't have a sense of it was one thing and then something else, and they synthesized and then maybe it progressed in that way. I'm sorry to be honest, I don't think I can answer your question. Um, after winning the Booker Prize, did you find that that affected your writing in any way? Did uh, winning the Booker Prize affect my writing? Um, well, I suppose people can judge that. <laughs> um, I would say no, no. Um, <clears throat> the effect of the Booker Prize was after I could, you know, 
simply enjoy winning the prize, which I, I certainly did, uh, is that um, you know, I went back to the job of writing another novel. Um, and in no way did it affect the, as I've been sort of trying to get across, the mysterious and perhaps rather messy way in which novels and stories uh, evolve. Uh, no, not at all. Uh, it didn't. Um, but I was very glad to win. Yes. Um, just a question about, did you always want to be a writer? And if you hadn't been a writer, what do you think you would have been? Uh, again, the short answer, I, I think, is yes. Um, I sometimes wonder, when did it all start for me? And as I wonder that, I find myself going further and further back, so that now I have a notion, at least, that it might have started, well, I wasn't actually aware of it, when I was very small. I mean, a bit like the small boy at the start of this story, going to primary school. Um, and I think it might have gone back simply to when I read my first storybooks as a child. And like many other children, I was enchanted by the magic that comes out of a book. Um, and I might have taken a further kind of mental step and said to myself, well, wouldn't it actually be nice to be one of these people that creates this magic? And, well, if that was true, it was obviously a very <laughs> flimsy thing. Um, uh, it was just like a boy wanting to be an engine driver, you know. Um, but it must have somehow stuck with me and stuck very tenaciously because, you know, the, effectively the, the course of the rest of my life was turning myself into a writer. And there were long periods when nothing much was happening, but the germ was there. And, you know, many years later, I became in my own eyes a writer before I was even published. And then I became a published writer. And I'll say something that I know a lot of people think is very, might be very naive and sort of innocent and childlike. Um, I've already spoken about how my stories, my novels even, begin with nothing more than a little glimmer. Uh, you could say that they begin with something as insubstantial as a dream. And we all know how our dreams can fade on us. And I think it's perfectly fair to say, in my case, that what I do when I write something is try to turn a dream into reality. It's as simple as that. I have this flicker, and I have to make it into a real thing. Um, and that applies to everything I write. It also, in a way, I have to say, I think applies to my life as a writer. That's to say, I had a dream, a little boy's dream perhaps, or a youth's dream of being a writer. And I made myself a writer. Um, I did it all by myself. I didn't have anyone in my family who was a writer, no one pushing me to be a writer, no mentor, tutor figure, nothing at all. I certainly didn't go to any creative writing school. It all came from me. But essentially what I was doing was 
I had this dream, and I was turning it into reality. Um, and naive and simple, as that may sound, I, I, I think it's true in my case. Um, and uh, it somehow repeats the pattern in everything I write. Is everything you write autobiographical? Or do you find, you know, do you have to find everything has to kind of come from a personal experience? Because you're sort of a related kind of question you said before about kind of your experience and things you experience and your dreams of kind of a small child and stuff. Is it always something that has to come from, you know, yourself? Or can it be totally fictitious and made up? Uh, well, uh, I think I've already answered that question. I think I've made it very clear that I am not an autobiographical writer. So I... Very, very rarely. I mean, a very, there's, you know, a lot of writers will, t will freely talk about, you know, the other day or last month or whatever, this thing happened to me, and that was what got me going with this story. I never find myself in that experience, and I certainly don't walk around, uh, as it were, on a permanent kind of reconnaissance trip for my writing. You know, as a, as a real person, I, I, I'm, I live my life. I, 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 I'm not always looking for that could make a story or whatever. I'm not like that. And the idea of being like that, actually, I find slightly distasteful. I, uh, I wouldn't want to live my life like that. Um, so. One more question. I'm going to go to Simon if there's no one else. Ah. Oh. <laughs> Two from the same okay. questioner. Um, okay. yeah, on, on the subject of you as a writer, I'm wondering what your writing practice is like. Do you, you said you had spaces where mm -hmm. nothing was coming to you, then all of a sudden you've been bombarded with never-ending mm -hmm. short stories. Mm -hmm. And do you... I mean, do you avoid them at times and have strange rituals where you, you, you have to go through something before you sit down and write? Or, and, you know, how, how does that sort of work for you, your writing practice? Uh, well, uh, for what it's worth, I mean, these are rather banal um, things to bring up, but uh, I'm, very, I'm very much a, 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 a morning person, so... You know, my writing day, if this is at all the area you're interested in, is it gravitates towards the, the morning, and I can start work very early, and uh, I'm, I think I'm at my best at, you know, six or seven o'clock in the morning. I can start earlier than that. Um, that's just a habit. Uh, and all writers have their little routines and their sort of disciplines, but... I think if all writers were honest, they would say that writing isn't essentially a disciplined activity. Uh, it's very unpredictable, it's very messy, and you have to live with a lot of confusion. Uh, since I'm in this room and in this place, perhaps painters would say the same. Um, I mean, there's a way in which painting can be literally, obviously messy, um, writer's desks can get pretty messy too. Um, it's, it's not an orderly um, prof profession to follow. Um, and thank God for that, you know. Um, so once we've all devoured your collection of short stories, what do we have to look forward to next? Do you have any idea? Absolutely none. Absolutely none. <laughs> um, uh, I would say if there was any 
little glimmer uh, at the moment, but I would only be able to say no more than that. Um, I usually find there's quite a long gap between books, um, and this book is special for me precisely because it is a book of stories. Uh, and not just that, because I hope it's, it's more than just a collection of stories. All of these stories are part of some kind of integral endeavour, uh, which make them a book. Um, it's not just a gathering together. Um, and because stories have suddenly arrived for me again, I suppose I would say that I would be inclined to encourage some more to come along rather than uh, to sit down and think about another novel. Um, but as I hope I've made clear, you, know, you, you just cannot predict and plan these things. They just do happen. Uh, and the fact that they just do happen is both one of the most infuriating things about writing, because it does mean sometimes nothing happens. And it doesn't happen for weeks and months and years, and you just have to live with that. But when it happens, it can be wonderful. And a great thing in a writer's experience, which certainly isn't an everyday thing, is this moment where you are dealing with something and you can honestly say to yourself, this did not exist yesterday. It just wasn't there yesterday. I had no inkling of it yesterday. Now it's here. I'm dealing with it. It must have something to do with me. It's only happening because of me. Um, and there's something intensely self-discovering about that and also wonderfully liberating. You are discovering something in you that you didn't know was there. And as long as I can have that feeling, as long as I can do that, I shall carry on writing. Thank you. I feel like I could listen to you for hours. But... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Graham. What Pin Drop represents is, is really something marvellous. I can't think of any other setup that quite does this, that's to say, it gives the focus to a story being read to people. And that's it, isn't it? That's the essence of it. Great. Thank you.